Hi there and welcome to the podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. With me today is Dr Mark Nichols from St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, Australia. Mark is one of the lead authors of the recently updated ANZIC's COVID-19 guidelines and he joins me today to discuss the updates. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Todd. Mark, just in brief, how would you summarise the major changes that you've made to, to this set of guidelines? Yeah, so to, to, to say that this is a, a huge group effort, so over 40 people are involved in writing the guidelines and it's, a, 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 it's been fantastic to be part of that process um, and especially under the leadership of uh, Steve McLaughlin uh, from the Alfred Hospital. Um, so uh, when the first guidelines were done, the big focus was uh, uh, getting a clear message out to to all levels from government down to the intensive care units about what we felt as a, cons- as a consensus within the group were the major things to move forward on at that point in time. The second version uh, of the guidelines had more time to actually look back at what uh, we'd said in the first version, but also to identify gaps that we knew were there that needed to be worked on. So in section one, um, the planning for the COVID-19 pandemic, the big gaps that we had were related to uh, the pandemic planning for remote, regional uh, and rural areas. And so that was an, an obvious concern and uh, we had a number of uh, members of ANZICS who got very heavily involved in this uh, with their expertise. And then the other area was the rapid response and, uh, medical emergency and code blue teams. And again, this was a big gap, and Daryl Jones uh, provided a huge amount of input to this section. Um, and then when it came to section two, um, I, the big gap there was the... Um, the staff safety and well-being component. Um, so there was a big focus on the psychosocial considerations uh, for the staff, um, how to um, uh, deal with, with potentially when these were being written a very difficult situation that, that we were facing. The other addition to it was also the metrics, so both for PPE but also for staff well-being. Um, so we'd identified that there were gaps related to the PPE uh, in terms of transparency and governance. And so this is an, an, um, a section that we had a big focus on as well. Mark, one of the changes that you, you talked about was the rural strategy. Can you tell us a little bit about what the recommendations cover? So uh, coming to the pandemic planning for remote and rural and regional areas, um, the, the big concern, um, obviously, is that we have a very large country with a number of uh, diverse and uh, vulnerable populations. Uh, and also within these areas, we have um, a workforce. And we have a skilled workforce, but uh, there's clearly not a, a lot of that workforce in those areas. There's also an element of that workforce that, that's uh, more transient, that doesn't stay there. And so there needed to be a focus about how to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic coming through those areas. And so there's a number of recommendations um, that were made. Um, so there had to be planning for uh, staff shortages and not relying on the short-term sort of fly and fly-out services uh, that have sometimes become a little bit of a norm in those areas as well. Um, and also identif- uh, there needed to be a focus on identifying those people 
We've had the critical care and airway skills within those those designated critical care areas. Um, also needed to be a focus on how to use telehealth and uh, virtual care services. And so those are sort of some of the main recommendations that came out of the of um, the remote, rural, and regional areas. But there are quite a number of recommendations that uh, people can see from from reading the document. Mark, you mentioned PPE. That's been a major focus for clinicians right across the world in terms of shortages and inadequate supplies and so on. And you mentioned that you've made some recommendations around PPE. Can you go through those for us? Yeah, so uh, clearly this is a concern for everyone. So uh, there's a number of factors that come to play with this. Is that when we were having the uncontrolled surge uh, in the number of cases, there was clearly going to be a potential for an uncontrolled surge into the hospital system. And um, uh, and with an increasing number of patients coming in, there would clearly be an increased requirement for PPE. Um, and then the problem is that our supply chains have been affected as well. So we weren't able to get source any PPE from, from mostly from China. And there's also going to be international competition for that PPE. So clearly there, there was, and then there was also a degree of concern about what the national uh, stockpile of PPE was as well. But any, any supply like that is a finite supply and it can be overwhelmed. And so to first off, to say that when we were writing these guidelines, we were uh, seeing a surge coming and thought that it was going to be a major, ongoing major, serious concern. So fortunately that hasn't happened. But the things that we talked about in the guidelines was um, uh, emphasising that not having um, enough PPE was going to be causing anxiety within the frontline workforce. And we made a recommendation that to be national and jurisdictional transparency so that people could actually see what was happening. And we also made a recommendation that to be sort of clear PPE governance structure uh, that would have that in transparency about what was the current inventory and supply and they also have processes in place by which there'd be an uh, escalation in, in case there was critical PPE shortages and uh, decision-making pathways so that local uh, demand um, uh, could be uh, understood from the frontline staff. Um, and then the other recommendation was about um, trying to um, be rational and appropriate with regards to PPE usage. So we did, uh, very early on, we looked at what the PPE usage was for patients in two hospitals, one in New South Wales and Victoria, and we were getting up to 135 sets of PPE per patient per day. And clearly the, the burn rate, at that burn rate, it, um, no... Uh, supply was going to be, um, uh, it was clearly going to be impossible to meet um, the demand. And so we needed to think about how we would reduce that demand. And part of reducing that demand is um, tied into trying to minimise the overall staff exposure. So doing things like excluding health workers are right, essential to care. Uh, another one was transferring the care to the intensive care specialist to minimise the necessity for other teams to come into the intensive care unit. Um, reducing face-to-face um, -face, um, uh, healthcare, um, encounter, healthcare uh, encounters with patients and doing that will be 
uh, trying to think about bundling actions that when you go into the room. Uh, cohorting patients was another one that could substantially decrease the PPE demand because you'd have everybody in PPE within that area and also using a sort of telemedicine or video conferencing in some form to decrease uh, demand. But then we looked at what the other conservation strategies uh, other people had suggested. So we looked at uh, recommendations from the Centers for Disease Control, the paper from JAMA, from Livingston, and also from the World Health Organization. And then we've categorized uh, the different strategies and made various comments related to those. The other thing we made comment about was things that we didn't recommend um, because we were concerned about going down those pathways. So such things as using... Um, face marks that are beyond their shelf life, um, storing um, masks in Ziploc bags and then using them again. And the other one was repurposing equipment such as sewing fabric masks, um, you, you know, pre, making prefabricated masks such as snorkels or scuba equipment or welder's masks um, and various other um, uh, repurposed sort of equipment we made. We, we, we did not recommend those at all and, and did not support them. Um, there's also been an interest in um, uh, strategies to reuse N95 masks after sterilisation, and uh, we didn't recommend that due to the lack of evidence over that of the safety at the, at the time of writing these guidelines. Mark, um, one of the other areas that you expanded on in these guidelines was around rapid response teams, and you've embraced the, the recommendations from an international body. Can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, so we were very fortunate to have Daryl Jones uh, involved in, in writing this component of the document. Um, and as you know, Daryl's been very active in this space um, uh, most of his professional life. Um, so there were a number of recommendations related to that. Um, and they're also tied into the pandemic document. There's a table within the guidelines which has, um, uh, it's called potential strategies and examples for phased tier ICU pandemic planning. And within that, you can actually see clearly what, this, uh, what the strategies are to consider at each phase. So in phase one, um, uh, in, there'd be, need to be a review of the rapid response model to care and looking at modifying the criteria for rapid response activation, looking at alternative staffing models, such as bringing non-critical uh, non care uh, um, nursing staff or medical staff into, into the rapid response system. Um, if, if we had a surge where we were looking after uh, unwell patients at risk on the wards, you'd have to look at also trigger points um, to move to a higher level that um, uh, that would have to all be agreed to and advanced. And then there's, um, in, when you move to a phase two, uh, where you've got moderate impact on daily operations with 25% of beds occupied by patients um, with COVID, looking at potentially reviewing and potentially reducing the ICU involvement in these um, ICU services, in these non-ICU services, which is the rapid response one, and bringing them those staff back into the intensive care and having um, a more of a ward-based rapid response system run by the, uh, by the COVID teams on the wards. Mark, you've made some fairly radical changes to the section on treatment, um, now referring uh, readers to an external source. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so uh, when we wrote the, the 
the original guidelines, um, uh, we went through and reviewed uh, all the evidence at that point in time. So that was on the 16th of March. And there was uh, no evidence to support any of the, um, uh, the, the therapies that have been um, proposed. Um, now, we ANZIS was approached very early on uh, uh, by um, the Cochrane team that were forming the National COVID-19 Evidence Group. And uh, we felt that it was an important initiative and we got ourselves actively involved in that. Um, we have quite a number of members, both from the college and ANZICS, involved. Uh, so we felt that it was more appropriate that 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 whole section be removed and that people should go to the COVID-19 evidence uh, website. Uh, it's a living document. Uh, it gets regularly updated as new evidence comes through. Um, so our, our preference and our thoughts were that that would be that we should remove the um, identification and treatment component of the guidelines. Whereabouts can readers find um, find access to that uh, that website? Yeah, so it's COVID nineteen evidence net dot au. Um, so if you look on the the fifth page uh, of the uh, guidelines, you can see the link to go to that that website. Mark, the last area that's um, of major focus for the revised guidelines is that of staff wellbeing. Can you tell us what you've uh, recommended there? Yeah, so staff wellbeing is critical. Uh, we need a sustainable workforce um, that stays healthy and safe through this this whole um, pandemic. Um, and so... Uh, a number of recommendations that we made actually early on in the first edition was things to try and uh, um, uh, keep the, sta the staff safe and potentially reduce the risk of healthcare, healthcare worker transmission to each other, but also to other to uh, their family at home. And so we made recommendations on the first guidelines about use of clean scrubs, being able to access change areas and showering facilities. Um, and also another one was uh, provision meals and drinks to frontline staff um, so that they wouldn't need to leave the hospital to seek food at, um, uh, during breaks and potentially also boost morale. Uh, we also made some recommendations about staffing. Um, so we talked uh, about um, potentially creating rosters with shorter shifts and limiting people's exposure to high-risk areas for part of the shift. Um, we made some recommendations about uh, making sure that there was adequate time off between shifts, um, made recommendations about uh, team huddles and debriefs at the beginning of each shift as well. Uh, we already had in the first guidelines some recommendations about post-exposure management so that we could, uh, that any nosocomial healthcare worker infection was entered into a, a local incident management system as a sentinel then so that these things could be monitored so that we could look at what happened and what, what could be improved to prevent that from happening as well. Uh, we made recommendations about the psychosocial considerations as well. So uh, 
we made a recommendation about mental health and psychosocial services being available, um, accessible, confidential and free. So another really important one, like there'd been all these recommendations, you know, focusing at a higher level, focusing at the intensive care level. But we also in this guidelines focus very much at the individual level. So we, we recognise that if we did have a surge and we potentially were overwhelmed, it would be a very difficult time for everybody involved, in not just in intensive care but in the hospital system. So we made um, a few comments and suggestions about recognising the symptoms of anxiety and stress within oneself as a frontline worker and then recognising those gave some suggestions for strategies to support themselves and care for their own well-being. Um, we also, in one of the appendices, put a series of recommendations about how to reduce the risk of transmission to those at home. Uh, not very evidence-based, but um, um, useful for people who are trying to seek some guidance. And we also put in there in another appendix um, support resources uh, that can, are available to intensive care staff as well. Mark, is there a, a plan for a version three? And if so, what will you be focusing on then? Yeah, so version two uh, filled um, some areas that we knew that we didn't have time to complete uh, in version one. Um, so moving forward with version three, we'll again look at uh, what we could potentially uh, refine or improve in. We are getting feedback um, from uh, uh, other people uh, with suggestions about changes in the, the next guidelines already. The other thought as well as we move through this is that this isn't going to be the last pandemic that we're going to have and that we need to start looking uh, to the future of the next pandemics potentially at the end of all of this, we may write, it into, write a final guidelines document which will also have in there the lessons that we've learned. So some of those lessons might be how we should have built or constructed our hospital systems better so that we're able to handle future pandemics. Um, it might be about how we handle PPE governance and structures. Um, and some of those things will evolve because the system's been currently tested at the system, but we would include those into a future guideline so that it could be used in the future as a reference source. Mark, the guidelines have been enormously helpful to many clinicians getting ready for this pandemic. Uh, thank you for all the work that you and the rest of the uh, working group have put into it, and uh, congratulations on their publication. Now, thank you, Todd. Again, we're very fortunate to have so many dedicated people who worked very hard to get these guidelines through. And, and thank you again to Steve McLaughlin for his leadership on this. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Mark. My pleasure. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. For more great interviews just like this, visit our website at osla.force.com.